Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. Happy birthday. You don't really know how to answer that, right? It's weird, right? Um, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open it up to 2 Chronicles 20. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles 20 uh, this morning. Just so you know that our birthday gift to you uh, this year is you got an extra hour of sleep this morning. So um, you're welcome for that. You guys all look um, slightly more awake and happier. Um, and I love fall back weekend. And uh, it is technically today our eighth birthday, which means eight years ago, um, we were at the Trillium Banquet Center um, right off of Van Wagner, and we were having our first ever services. And I was talking with my uh, family. We were in the car on Wednesday this week, and I told Mary, I said, hey, this weekend's a cool weekend for us. It's our birthday weekend. And my daughter, Ashley, who's seven, was like, oh, really? How old's the church? And I said, yeah, it's going to be our eighth birthday on Sunday. And she's like, only eight? That's not a big deal. And I'm like, well, you're only seven, so you're even less of a deal. Take that, right? It's a big deal to me. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a wild thing to think that we have been around for eight years. And um, here's the truth about me. If you know me or if you're getting to know me, you're going to find out very, very quickly. I'm not a sentimental person. Um, I think if you were to poll our staff and, and say, hey, what are five words that describe Calvin? You would not find one of them say, man, he's just so sentimental. In, in fact, I almost sent that out in an email this week. Hey, give me the five words to describe me. I didn't want to read the answers, though. I, I chickened out in the last moment. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. No one would say sentimental. And, and what happened this week is um, Pastor Chris who I believe that when God was passing out the gift of being sentimental, I think Pastor Chris stole my portion. Um, he is very sentimental, way more so than me. He started going through old videos and sharing it with our staff. Like, oh, here was our first baptisms. Here was the, the video we made for our first anniversary. Here's a question. How many of you remember um, our first year anniversary? Who was still with us those days? Yeah, I see like just a few hands. And if that's you... Um, Thank you for putting up with us for so long. You deserve a gold star. Um, but he was sending out all of these cool videos from our past, even as I watch uh, the video we showed at announcements. It's just amazing to see what God has done here. And as I've been thinking a little bit about that this week, um, when I think about our church, I just want to share this with you. Um, there's two things that really jump out to me. Here's the first. Um, I'm overwhelmed with God's kindness and goodness to our church. It truly is amazing. What God has done here at Harvest over the past eight years, it is so much more than a pastor or a team or a staff or a model of ministry. God has poured out his power and blessing in this place. And here's the truth. To my shame, like I need to own this, to my shame, if you would have told me eight years ago today that I would be here and this ministry would be what it is in eight years, I wouldn't have believed it. I would have said, no way, you're crazy, God can't do that, that's not going to happen. God has so far exceeded even beyond what my faith and hopes for the ministry were. And please hear this, I'm not talking about numbers or campuses or buildings. Here's what I'm talking about. Um, this is a place where lives are being saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are people coming to know the Lord and getting baptized and we have seen lives dramatically be transformed in real lasting ways. We've seen marriages transformed, families transformed in, in ways that aren't just for a moment, but, but last um, in, into like continuing to change and transform. Um, what I love about this church is all of you, there's a hunger for God's word. 
And every week we come and we open the Bible and it's like, all right, what does it say? How can we mold our lives to, to shape and to be under God's word? And there's just a joy and excitement to hear God's word taught. I love that in the land of the frozen chosen, the Dutch reformers, that this is a place where we come and we passionately worship the Lord with emotions and we raise our hands and we sing loud. It's a joy every week to worship the Lord with all of you. And uh, we love one another well and are committed to loving one another. And we're not perfect. We've got a lot of areas to grow in, and that's going to be a continual process. But I tell you what, God has been good to us in this church. Amen? And then here's the other thing that really jumps out to me every time. We, every, uh, the beginning of the month, every Friday, our staff gathers together for a time of prayer. And um, I was just overwhelmed at how many people I know and love that I wouldn't have known if it weren't through the ministry. Like there are hundreds and hundreds of people who have blessed me and my family simply through the church. And I think about the Flickamas and I think about the Cooks and the Gravelins, all of these families that, that I know and love that I wouldn't have met if it hadn't been for the church. And what I love about that is this church is more than something we do. It really is a family. And when you're serving and plugged into small groups, you, you begin to love one another like family and it's a massive blessing. All right, so here's the thing. I just ringed out all of my sentiment for 2018. That's all I got. We'll revisit this in 2019, but we got some work to do this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles open, um, open them up to 2 Chronicles 20. And here's the thing. I think, I think it's true for all of us. When we think back on our lives, like if you were to think about yourself 10 years ago, or if I think about, man, the first Sunday at our church, whenever we look back on things, um, there's always what pops out is what was different, right? Like I think eight years ago, um, my wife was very pregnant with twins, but I didn't know what it meant to be a dad yet. And I'm like, man, our lives were so much different eight years ago. Or if you think about your business when it just started or your family or, or you, you know, back in high school, what pops out is, man, things are so different. Um, but for our church eight years ago, uh, on this first Sunday, um, we preached through four pillars. And, and there are some things in our church that have not changed in eight years. And here's what our four pillars were that, that we um, talked about when we first launched this church. We wanted to be a church that preached the authority of God's word without apology. We were a church that was committed to opening the Bible, preaching God's word, and submitting our lives to it. We wanted to be a church that believed firmly in the power of prayer. We wanted to be a church that sought the Lord, that took prayer seriously, that prayed like we believed that God cared and he would answer. We wanted to be a church that lift, lifted high the name of Jesus through worship. We wanted to sing praises to him loudly like he calls us to. We wanted to be a place where the joy of the Lord would be found. And then we wanted to be a church that would share the good news of Jesus with boldness. And here's the truth. If you go onto our doctrinal statement, these are still our four pillars. We have not moved from these things and we're in a different location. We have different campuses. A lot has changed in eight years, but our commitment to these four things has not moved. And by God's, prom or by God's providence, what's cool is in 2 Chronicles 20, we're going to see a story where all four pillars are at work, and we're going to see how God moves in a miraculous way when we hold these things highly. So again, 2 Chronicles 20, just a little bit of background while you're getting there. 
Second Chronicles is a spiritual commentary on the nation of Israel. So um, there was King Saul was the first king. King David was the second king. Um, second Chronicles starts with King Solomon. That's the first nine verses of Second Chronicles. And then it talks about 19 other kings in, in the nation of Israel and Judah. After King Solomon, there's a civil war. The nation splits in two. There's Judah and there's Israel. Uh, second Chronicles deals primarily with Judah. And it talks about 20 kings in the nation of Judah. And of these 20 kings, 12 are evil kings and eight are good. And it's almost like every other. You get good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king. It's just kind of like you're seeing the slow demise of the nation of Judah before they end up in Babylonian captivity. And we're going to look at a king named Jehoshaphat today. And Jehoshaphat was a good king. So look at verse 1. He's a good king who loves the Lord, but there's trouble coming his way. It says this, after the Moabites and Ammonites, or after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from, the, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, and Gedi. All right, so the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Meunites, they are three Canaanite people, they form an alliance to come against Israel. And um, the Jehoshaphat, he has some scouts. The scouts see the army. They come back and tell the king, they say, we are in crisis. We can't defeat this army. And they're close. They're already in the promised land. They're already in En Gedi. Jehoshaphat has a problem and he can't run from it. He can't hide from it. There is war coming. And isn't that how crisis has always happened? Isn't it always like everything's good until everything's terrible? Everything's smooth, everything's growing fine uh, uh, until the company makes cuts or until you have that call from the doctor or until something happens. Crisis has always seemed to hit us out of the blue. And here's what you need to understand about Jehoshaphat. The king before Jehoshaphat, his name was King Ahab, and he was like the worst king in Israel's history. And he was uh, setting up idols all over the place, and, and they worshipped Baal. And so what Jehoshaphat's been doing is he's been king, is he's been trying to get rid of all of these idols and these bad temples and these high places. So Jehoshaphat, he's trying to serve the Lord. He's trying to do what's right. He's calling the people back to God. He's doing everything he should be. And then all of a sudden, three enemies unite together to attack his kingdom. And here's what you need to understand about crisis is that spiritual warfare is real. And oftentimes crisis is hit at the moment we take steps of faith to follow God. It's in the moments we say, hey, we're going to make changes in our family. Often then you will face a spiritual crisis. Okay, but look how he responds in verse 3. He knows the battle's coming. He can't run from it. It's close. It says, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Makes sense. And he set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all of the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. All right, man, this is powerful. Look what Jehoshaphat's first move is when he hears of the crisis. He doesn't gather his generals. He doesn't panic. He doesn't freak out. But it says he turned his face towards the Lord. And here's our big idea this morning is that prayer is not a last resort. It's my first response. Prayer is not a last resort. 
It's my first response. Jehoshaphat does three things in these two verses. He sets his face to seek the Lord. He calls a fast for all of Judah. He's like, listen, everyone, we've got to gather together. We're not going to eat, but we're going to seek the Lord in prayer in an intentional way. Which, by the way, think about that on a military leadership level. If you're about to go to battle, don't you want your army well-fed and have energy? He says, we're going to forego food because we're going to seek the Lord together. That he gathers everyone together to come and pray. All three of his first moves were vertical. Isn't that convicting? Jehoshaphat sought the Lord. I think it's time to ask ourselves some tough questions. Where do you run when a crisis hits? Who are you seeking this morning? Is your first move to seek the Lord in prayer? Or is it a last resort when nothing else will work? Do you tend to run to anxiety and worry and dread? Do you go to your own strength and say, I can figure this out and I can solve the problems. And and after everything I try doesn't work, then is like a Hail Mary at the end of the game. Do you run to prayer? Um, A couple weeks ago, I was able to go on a trip with my family. And when I go on vacation or go on trips, I try to catch up on reading. And I started reading a book called Spirit-Filled Jesus. It's written by Mark Driscoll. And this is how he opens up his book. This is the first sentence in his book. It really was powerful, stuck with me. Here's what he says. He says, you think too much about yourself. You don't think about Jesus enough. And that is your one problem that makes all of your other problems worse. Isn't that so true? Like we are so conditioned to be consumed with ourselves, especially when a crisis hits. We tend to get very myopic and very selfish. And how am I feeling? What am I going to do? How is this affecting me? We run to ourselves. And and here's the truth. Every year in our country, we spend somewhere between between $10 and $20 billion on an industry called self-help. And listen, I'm not dogging self-help. I don't think all of it's bad. But here's the truth. Our problem as people is not that we are not thinking about or trying to help ourselves enough. It's that we are thinking about ourselves and trying to help ourselves way too much. When really what we need to do is get our eyes off of ourselves and seek the Lord and ask for his spirit to help where there is real, true, life-saving help. Who are you seeking for help? Are you seeking the Lord? You know, it's interesting. I said earlier that the book of 2 Chronicles, it talks about 20 kings. 12 were evil, 8 were righteous. When you boil it all down, you know what the only difference between evil kings and righteous kings were? It's who did they seek? The evil kings, they sought idols. They sought themselves. They they sought the things of this world. The righteous kings, they sought the Lord. It's so simple. Who are you seeking Today, where are your eyes? Jehoshaphat, thankfully, was seeking the Lord. Look at verse 5. It says, And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and in Jerusalem and in the house of the Lord before the new court. And we're going to hear his prayer right here. Listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, And he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all of the kingdoms and the nation. And in your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? 
And they have lived in it and built, in, built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, if sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house and cry to you in our affliction, and you will hear and you will save. And now behold these men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who you, will not let is, who you would not let Israel invade when they came into the land of Egypt, and whom you avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given to us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Okay, here's the first thing we see so clearly this morning is that God's people have a power through prayer. God's people have a power through prayer. This is one of the most amazing prayers in the whole Bible. It says, Jehoshaphat gathers the whole nation and he does three things in his prayer. The first thing he does is he says, hey God, you are in control. And he's teaching us how to pray in a crisis when we don't have any answers. He's saying, God, you've created everything. You're in control. You've given us this land. You are the only one that can stop this enemy. And I think when we're in a crisis, when we don't know what to do, we need to quickly acknowledge we are not in control, but God is. The second thing he does is he reminds God of his character and his promises. He said, God, you have called us your friend. You have given us this land. We've built you a temple here. And you said that no one would drive us out from it, but that this land would be ours and we would be your people. And then the third thing he does is he simply asks God for help. He's saying there is this great horde of people that are coming against us. We can't stop them. God, we need your help. Look at verse 12. I love verse 12. It says, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I think if there was a theme verse for our church, it might be verse 12. God, we don't know what we're doing, but our eyes are on you. What a great verse for your family. What a great verse for you, God. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to change what's coming my way. I can't avoid it. It's coming, but my eyes are on you. This has been so true in, in the history of our church. I remember even when our elders and our leadership first walked through this building, we prayed through every room and we were deciding, man, is this a place that we should move into as a church? And we were overwhelmed. And we're like, I don't know, it's too big. I think it's going to be too hard. It's a scary decision to make. We're just getting settled at international aid. But God, we feel like you're opening this door and our eyes are on you. And if you're calling us here, help us to be faithful to respond. I remember when we hired Pastor Eric to be our 20s pastor. Um, no one in the area really had a um, dedicated 20s pastor or 20s ministry. So we went around to other churches and said, all right, what do you guys do with your young people who are out of high school, but maybe not married yet? And um, here's what the church has told us. They say, don't do anything with those people. They're super flaky. They're super sketchy. They don't tithe at all. You're just pouring resources into something that's not going to be a thing. Let them get married. Let them settle down. And then they'll come back to church. So like literally other churches are being like, you guys are morons for trying to pour into your 20s. It's a gaping hole. And guess what we found after pursuing our 20s for um, five years, six years? They are sketchy, 
They can be flaky, but man, do they have potential to honor the Lord and to do amazing things, both in the life of our church and in this community. And I tell you what, it was a moment where we said, God, we believe in this age group. We believe in this generation. We're going to pursue this and to see all of the people, young people in our church, we have like over 150, I think, that are plugged into small groups, meeting together, gathering together to worship the Lord. It's been an amazing thing. And Eric now, he's planting Harvest Fremont, and God has used his time here to build him up and grow him to take on this next challenge. What an awesome thing. I remember when um, we were approached by the elders in a church in North Muskegon, and it was a church that was struggling, and they said, hey, we got this great building, but we're struggling. Is there any way we could replant as a harvest church? And I remember being like, man, you guys are really different from us. I don't know if this is going to work. This sounds like this could be really hard, and there could be a lot of conflict, and this is scary. God, we don't know what we're doing. We've never planted a church before. We're just getting our feet underneath us ourselves. But God, you're in this. And then God provided Brian Beeman, the man to lead that church. And God created such an incredible unity between our elders and their elders and Brian and their elders. And that has been such a God-glorifying thing. I remember in that first meeting I had with their elders, my dad and I met with them. And we were discussing just what this could potentially look like. And one of their elders was a sweet, godly man in his 70s. And he just started to cry in our meeting. And he says, you know what, I just have such a heart and longing for North Muskegon. And he goes, I just want to, before God brings me home, I would love to see our building just packed to the doors with the people praising the name of Jesus Christ. You know, he's still at that church today, and he gets to see that each Sunday in both services. Like that was so much more beyond what God, or what we would have thought, but God could do it. And now North Muskegon is partnering with us in planting Harvest Fremont. And that's just been such an awesome, God-glorifying thing. Okay, look here. We have to get this. A person who does not pray. A marriage that does not pray. A family that does not pray, a church that does not pray, will never experience the power of God. The power of God present and working in your life is connected to and tied to your willingness to make prayer. Not a last resort, but a first priority. Who are you seeking today? And here's what we need to understand. Not communicating with God is communicating. You realize that, right? You realize that sometimes by not communicating, you're communicating just as loudly. Like if I come home from work and I just go straight to my office and Mary says, hi, Cal, and I don't say anything and I just slam the door, I've communicated something, right? And when we don't pray, what we are communicating is, hey, God, thanks, but I'm good and I don't need you. And why would God pour out his power on us when we're communicating to him that we don't need him? Prayer is a first resort. We have power through prayer. Look at verse 13. It says this. It says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, of Jael, and Mataniah. That's really fun to read. Um, a Levite of the son of Asaph. So here's what God's doing. It says that the spirit of the Lord descends on a prophet. And the way that God responded to people and spoke to them in the Old Testament was through a prophet. So we see instantly God responds to the prayers of his people. Look at verse 15. 
And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them and behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And you will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So the people gather together, they're seeking the Lord, and the Lord responds with some of the coolest phrases in the entire Bible. Look at 17 again. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Second thing we see is that God's people have a strength through standing. God's people have a strength through standing. What, what God tells the people of Israel is, listen, you won't need to fight. The battle is not yours, but it's God. But all you need to do is go down to the battlefield and stand firm. Don't run away. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Believe that I'm with you. Go to the battlefield and do not move. He's calling the people to stand firm on the word of God. Listen, church, um, I've never been a big doomsday guy. Like, if you go to my backyard, you're not going to find a bunker, I promise you. Um, but can we at least admit today that our country is in the midst of a spiritual crisis? That that is a real thing? We've talked a lot about this in the last year through our New Way Forward series, which was a series on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about what life in Christ looks like. That we live in a culture that everyone would admit is running away from the authority of God's word. Do you agree? Right? It is harder today to stand for God's word than it has ever been. And it is the most minimized and criticized probably in our country's history. So what's happening is, is everyone would agree that we are running away from the authority of God's word. And then here's what everyone else would agree. Everyone would say by every measurable statistic that our country is more miserable and more angry than we've ever been. There is more anxiety, there is more fear, there is more addiction, there is more suicide. Every statistic would say that we're not in a good place and we haven't been able to connect that these two things are related. In John 1... 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In John 10, 10, Jesus says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, and I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says that when you stand firm on the word of God and when you believe in Jesus Christ, the result is not just for us in heaven, but the reward is life and life abundantly today. And listen, we as a church are never moving away from God's word. There are entire churches and entire denominations that are caving to culture and are punting on God's word. But we're going to be a place that stands firm on the word of God because it is true. God's word has stood the test of time. 
Ever since the beginning of the church, people have been minimizing it and criticizing it and trying to push it to the edge of society. And it has stood the test of time as a book that is written by God with the supernatural power of God. Only God's word can perfectly diagnose our hearts. Like, do you need any more proof that the Bible is God's word? A book written thousands of years ago by men across the world can perfectly diagnose what's going on in my heart in 2018. Only God has the power to do that. Only God's word provides the hope of salvation. That Jesus Christ and God coming to earth is the only logical and real hope for salvation of, over sin of mankind. That when I understand Jesus, all of a sudden everything else I see around me begins to make sense. Only Jesus holds salvation, and it provides me the path of true joy in life. Listen, we've been a church for eight years. Never once in eight years have someone said, man, I chose to honor the Lord, and I chose to follow the Lord, and man, has that made me miserable. Now, I've talked with a lot of people who have run the other way and are living through the consequences of sin and the heartbreak and pain that that brings. But when we humble ourselves to the Lord, the pathway of life opens to us. What are you standing on? What is the thing that defines your life? Can you honestly say, I am not going to move from God's word and its authority no matter what my friends say, no matter what my work says, no matter what my family does? Look at verse 18. It says, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So they're pumped. They just told they're going to win, so they start worshiping the Lord. It says, And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. God's people have victory through believing in God. God's people have victory simply in believing. So they get up early the next morning. And notice what, they, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they got on their armor. They didn't gather their weapons. They didn't leave the women and children at home. They didn't come up with a strategy of how they were going to fight this group. It says they just showed up to the battlefield. And Jehoshaphat gathers the people and he says, Listen, we're going to have victory today. All we have to do is believe. And what I love about this story is, isn't this such a clear picture of the gospel? That Jehoshaphat's victory was not going to come through his might or his wisdom or his strength or his power, but it was going to come through believing in God. And isn't our victory the exact same thing? It's not about how good we are. It's not about our actions. It's not about our perfection. It's about believing that God made a way for us to be saved. It's about believing that God loves us, not because we're amazing or we're great or we deserve God's love, that God loves us because he is good and he is kind and he gave his son for us willingly that our sin would be atoned for, that all we have to do is believe in the name of Jesus Christ and we will be saved and adopted into the family of God. Amen? Listen, that's why Jesus says, come to me 
for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that every day all around us there are people carrying a massive burden of guilt and shame. And they don't know how to process it and they don't know what to do with it and it is killing them. And Jesus has come, put that burden on me, I can handle it and you can receive the forgiveness and redemption that is available to you in God. So the reason that we are a gospel-centered church is because it is our hope and it is our victory. I remember about nine years ago, before the church had even planted, I was sitting in a room with Chris and Carolyn, uh, my wife and myself and my mom and dad. And we were just dreaming about a church that could be someday. It wasn't even, Harvest Spring Lake wasn't an, even a reality yet. But we we're like, all right, what would be the, the theme for our church? What would we want to be central to our church? And we quickly came together that we wanted to be a gospel-centered church. We talk about Jesus every Sunday. We preach the gospel every Sunday because it is the theme that weaves together the entire Bible. And it is the message we need. Whether you've been saved two minutes or 25 years, you need to be reminded over and over again you are loved not based on your effort or your performance, but based on the goodness and character of God. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Where do you find your identity in today? Our victory is in believing. Look how this passage ends. Check out verse 21. It says, When they had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and to praise him in holy attire. And they went before the army and they said, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. All right, so this is an interesting battle plan. He says, instead of sending the army to fight, we're going to send the choir. Right? Imagine if you're like the Moabites and you're like, wait, a bunch of dudes in robes just came out and they're singing. Like, what, what's going on here? Right? Not, not what you would think a winning plan would be. But look how God responds. Look at 22. This is so cool. It says, and when they began to sing in praise, at that very moment... The Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. So at the moment God's people praise, all of a sudden the enemies, this alliance falls apart and they all start fighting each other and they wipe each other out. Right, the last thing we see so clearly this morning is that God's people have a weapon through worship. We have a weapon through worship. You know, I think so often we have such a wrong picture about how God interacts with us when we sing songs to him and praise his name. I think so often we think that God is in heaven and he's passive in our worship. So it's like we're here and we're singing songs and the songs get to heaven eventually and God's in the throne room and he's on his recliner, right? And he's like, wow, these songs sound amazing. And, you know, um, Dave Newman, he's a little out of pitch, but I, I'm cool with that anyways. And, and he sounds great and she sounds great. But wow, all of this singing really makes me feel good. Okay, God doesn't respond to our worship like that at all. But the Bible says that he inhabits the praise of his people and that he moves and responds and works in power in the moments we worship him. 
Over and over again, we see in Scripture God who is present with us and inhabits the praises of his people. God can move in our hearts. He can heal. He can transform. He can do the actual saving that we need in our worship. Throw up the big idea again. Prayer is not a last resort. It is my first response. So here's what I would ask you. Are you in a crisis this morning? Maybe you're here and you're in a crisis. And by the way, that can be any type of crisis. It can be a health crisis. It can be a financial crisis. It can be a family crisis. It can be a spiritual crisis. Look at me. Are you in a crisis this morning? Where are you running? Who are you seeking? What I love about God is that so, so often when things are craziest, we're called to do the most simple things. And what God is saying is that, listen, in the middle of a crisis, and by the way, if you're not in a crisis this morning, it's coming. And you're not going to be ready for it, and you're not going to be aware it's going to hit you from like a 90-degree angle. But what do we do in that moment? We seek the Lord. We set our face towards him and say, God, I can't do anything. You are in control of everything. We need to be a people that seek the Lord. And then you know what we do in the middle of the storm? We worship. Because our weapon is in worship. That God interacts with us when we worship. And he is active and he is with us. And we're saying, God, even in the middle of the storm, I trust you and you are good and you are mighty to save. Can we be honest in church for a second? How many of you guys have been in a season in your life where you come to church and it's hard for you to sing and it's hard for you to worship? Have you ever been there? Raise your hand if you've been there. Okay, I've been there. What's going on in that moment is the enemy doesn't want you to worship because he doesn't want you to receive the power of God. And I found so often for me, at the moment I don't want to sing, or at the moment it's hard for me to raise my hand, that's the exact moment where I need to lean into that thing and worship the Lord and trust that his spirit is going to be present and faithful once again. Listen, church, we worship the Lord in seasons of victory to acknowledge that our victory comes from the Lord. If things are great, if you're in a season of victory, we worship, say, God, the victory is yours. You are good. You are worthy. You receive honor and glory and praise. We worship the Lord in seasons of fear because we cling to the one who is in control. God, it's scary. So I'm going to set my face towards you because you are the light of the world and you push the darkness away. We worship the Lord in seasons of defeat because we praise the one who forgives, who heals, and who saves. When we fall short, when we have bad weeks, that is, should not cause us to run away from worship. God is not angry with you. He's not disappointed. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem, to save, and restore. We run to him in worship. And we worship the Lord in seasons of heartbreak because we know the one who promises to wipe away every tear we have cried. This is eight years in. We want to be a church that believes in the word of God that loves one another well, but that seeks the Lord through prayer and worships his name in every season. So we're gonna close this weekend like we do so many. We're gonna pray right now. We're gonna seek the Lord and then we're gonna worship his name because that's what we're called to do. Dear Heavenly Father, 
God, here's what I know. I know that there are a million different circumstances and scenarios in this room right now. And God, I know very few of them, but you are keenly aware of every single one. And God, you have not called us to have all the answers. You've not called us to have everything figured out. You have not called us to save ourselves with our own strength. You have called us to seek you. So would we be a people who get low and get humble and seek the Lord? May we have the heart of Jehoshaphat that says, God, we don't know what we're doing, but our eyes will not leave you because you are our only hope. Would we seek you? Would we worship your name for you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Keep us in this place. Don't let us move from where you would have us. We love you. It's in your great son's name we pray. Amen.